I'm Sarah. And I'm Megan. And welcome to the Murder After Dark podcast. How's everybody doing today? Hopefully well. Hopefully better than us, because I'm not going to lie, we struggling. I think that there's a reason they call this the most stressful time of the year. It is the most wonderful time of the year, the most stressful time of the year. Matrice still not up, though, so that's a win for my husband. <laughs> we are actually hosting um, a family Thanksgiving at our house, and I think that... We have to wait till after that to put up the tree. Usually we would put up our tree a little bit earlier. I plan to have our tree up by Friendsgiving next weekend. Oh, really? So. I don't know. I think that. Stay tuned. I think that in order to fit everybody in our house, we have to Mm -hmm. wait to put up the tree. We'll see whether or not it happens. I always start out with the best of intentions. Oh, absolutely. Best of intentions, worst laid plans. I used to be one of those people who was like. Keep them separate. Don't do things. Don't do Christmas before. And I just, I gave that up a couple years ago. I feel like it just makes me happy. No. That thing going around where it says Thanksgiving is a day. Christmas, Christmas is, is a season. season. <laughs> Adjust accordingly. <laughs> Absolutely. So, but hopefully everybody's doing well. Hopefully the weather's lovelier than it is here. We're about to have a hurricane come through in the shape of a penis. It it's, is. I'm not lying. <laughs> it's Hurricane Nicole. And please look on the, it's the New Hanover County government website. We don't live in New, New Hanover County, but it is still no, North but Carolina. And it is, read the comments. It's That's hilarious. all I have to say. Read the it comments. We'll absolutely make, abso- okay. So after this episode, when you go and make yourself uh-huh. feel better, go yes. read those comments. When you decompress. Yes. Go read the comments. Trust on us. On the picture of the hurricane path on the New Hanover County government website. And on our social media, maybe we'll repost it after maybe. this episode airs too, because surely you're still going to be able to access it. But anyway, penis hurricanes aside, <laughs> shall we dive into today's episode? Absolutely. So today we are here to tell you about the story of Belle Gunness, who was widely believed to be one of the first female serial killers in the U.S., Now, there are points in this story where I wanted to be that person sitting in the theater, (laughs) screaming at the screen, telling the character, don't go in there. Only I would be sitting there screaming, how do you guys not see that this is murder? I know. How did she get away with this for so long? Um, I guess it's that whole hindsight 2020 thing, but... That is one of our favorite sayings. Hindsight's 2020. I like to judge people, but (laughs) I guess I can't. My detective badge may have a little bit of plastic to it, but Mm -hmm. even I was like, hmm, this is a little sus. (laughs) Something is not adding up. But at this point, I mean, female serial killers weren't even, like, really considered a thing. No, because if you'll remember, when we talked about Lizzie Borden, the best time to be killing people as a woman is the Victorian area. Absolutely. The Victorian area, the Victorian era, era, error, error. One in the same, three in the same. So I'm having difficulty speaking the English language today. It's starting already. But the best time to kill people (laughs) as a woman was in the Victorian era when nobody thought you were capable. So oh, you were just a nice little Victorian woman. Yeah, that ship has sailed, folks. Even Sorry you, about it. Even if you had three husbands. Exactly. Seriously. And today, she is definitely still considered one of the most prolific female serial killers. And as y'all will learn, we may never even have an accurate number of victims for her. And who knows? Maybe Bella's still out there slicing and dicing with ye old Jack the Ripper. 
and Elvis. Elvis? And Tupac. Did Elvis slice Maybe. some dice? No, 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 no. Mm-mm. Oh, I was like, if that's an episode we have to no, do. No, 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 no. I'm just talking about people who are supposedly oh, dead, gotcha. but you know, still gotcha. alive. Okay, yes. I was like, that's not a side that right. I might heard right. of. And just kidding. She didn't necessarily slice and dice. I mean... She's probably not still here now because she'd be like 160-something years old. But you never know. You never know. She does have a nice conspiracy theory about what happened to her, though, which we will talk about. Yep. Stay tuned. Belle Gunness was born Bernhild Paulsdatter Sorset. What a name. On November 11th, 1859. She was born to Paul and Barrett Sorset. <laughs> She's doing her best, job. That was so, I don't know why I, like, super paused there. <laughs> she was born to Paul and Barrett Sorset in the small parish of Selbu, Norway, home to less than 4,000 people at the time. Her father, Paul, was a stones mason, and he owned a farm. Bernhild was the youngest of eight children, and her father expected all of them to pitch in and help with the farm. At 14 years old, she began working at a neighboring farm as well, as her own and grew up to be a quite physically large woman. Not a lot is known about her early life, although there is a rumor that when Bernhild was 18, she became pregnant. One night, she attended a dance where she was attacked by a man who kicked her in the stomach, causing her to miscarry her pregnancy. The man, who came from a local wealthy family, never faced any charges. What the fuck? Yeah. It's an unconfirmed story, but it does also say that the man died of what was said to be stomach cancer shortly later. Do we know why he did it? Like, was he connected to her pregnancy at all? I couldn't find anything that said who he was or what his connection to Belle was. But honestly, I wouldn't be surprised. Afterwards, locals said that Bernhild's personality and behavior changed drastically. So, while I can't give you our typical serial killer upbringing... If this event actually did happen, it could certainly have spawned her murderous tendencies. For the next three years, she worked really hard trying to save up money for a ticket to join her sister in the United States. And in 1881, when she was 21 years old, Bernald immigrated and was processed through Castle Garden, later becoming Ellis Island, and officially changed her name to Belle Peterson. She traveled to Chicago, Illinois, and moved in with her sister and brother-in-law, in an area where a lot of other Scandinavians lived. Initially, Belle worked as a housekeeper and then got a job at a butcher's shop cutting up animal carcasses. It was reported that Belle was somewhere between 200 and 250 pounds and around 5'8", physically strong and masculine in appearance. So she had no problem doing some down and dirty work. Did you happen to come across the word buxom by chance? (laughs) Unfortunately not. We can go with brawny, though. How about that? That's a good one. We're all about the buxom, brawny, trunchbull women. (laughs) They seem to be a theme. Not long after this, Belle met a man named Mads Sorensen, who worked as a department store watchman, and in 1884, they got married. Two years later, they opened a candy shop. The shop was not very successful, and they were actually losing money on it, but lucky for them... Less than a year after purchasing it, the shop burned down and they were able to collect insurance on it. In an interesting turn of events, a few years later, their home also burned down and they were able to collect insurance on that as well. Well, well, well. They used this money to buy a new house 
This was just the beginning of unexplainable things happening around Belle, though, because also during this period, the couple had four children, Caroline, Axel, Myrtle, and Lucy. There's a lot of speculation as to whether these children were biological or adopted, as neighbors said that she never appeared to be pregnant. Two of the four children, Caroline and Axel, both died as infants from acute colitis. This is swelling of the intestines. And while I couldn't tell you what medical protocols were in place for this in the late 19th century, I can tell you that the symptoms, nausea, fever, diarrhea, and lower abdominal pain and cramping, are very similar to symptoms of poisoning. Bell also collected life insurance policies on both infants. Life insurance on infants? So life insurance on your kids is a thing because people ask me about that for my kid. <laughs> um, not sure how big of a thing it was back then, but I do question the timing of Bell purchasing the insurance policies. I, I mean, I don't know the timing, but... Did she purchase the policies at the onset of their symptoms just before? Did it happen when they were born? I'm not sure about pre-existing conditions and whether or not they count. So who knows? That's a lot of speculation. A lot of questions I have to remain unanswered. But either way, it's super fishy. I feel like a lot of really young children probably died early in those days. Oh, yeah. So... I don't oh, know for sure. That would be Everybody like, was dying back maybe then. Maybe that was like standard. Who right. knows? That's why you had to marry at like 14 because yeah. you were dead by 35. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you're going to crank out some babies, better get married and have them. And also, according to a census taken on June 13th, 1900, they also had a 10-year-old daughter named Jenny Olson who was adopted. Belle must have thought that her husband's life insurance policy needed some updating, too, because she decided to switch him to a new one. This policy would be a larger one than his previous, and since he was switching to a new policy, the old one would obviously expire, and the new one would take effect. This happened on July 30th, 1900. How do we know this? Because this is the exact day that Mads died. You're shitting me. I wish I was. Mads Sorensen died on the day that his two life insurance policies overlapped. The first doctor to arrive on the scene believed that he had suffered from, wait for it, strychnine poisoning. Mm -hmm. Strychnine is a high power poison and pesticide, by the way. It was previously used as a recreational stimulant, like as early as, or I guess as recent as the 1990s. Unfortunately, the side effects, the ones that set in before fatality, that is, are muscle spasms, stiffness, agitation, and if exposed to a fatal dose, respiratory failure and brain death can occur within half an hour. So it packs a punch. But despite this first doctor believing it being poisoning, the family doctor eventually arrived and told everyone that he had been treating Mads for an enlarged heart and therefore concluded that the cause of death was heart failure. They also decided that an autopsy wasn't really necessary because his doctor was like, nah bro, this is heart failure. Sorensen's family argued for an autopsy, and rightfully so, and demanded an inquiry claiming that Belle had poisoned her husband to collect on the two policies, but no charges were ever filed. After everything, Belle walked away with about $8,500, close to about $300,000 in today's money. 
She moved away from Chicago and bought a 42-acre farm on McClung Road on the outskirts of LaPorte, Indiana. There were reports that shortly after moving onto the property, both the boat and carriage house burned down. But she is not subtle, is she? Mm-mm. This is my point. During the move, she ran into an old acquaintance named Peter Gunness. He was also a recent widower and also from Norway. They were married on April 1st, 1902, and just one week after the wedding, Peter's infant daughter died of uncertain causes while alone in the house with Belle. Seriously, like, how has nobody suspected Belle for any of these deaths? Does there need to be, like, a big flashing neon sign hanging above her? Apparently so. And Peter wasn't that far behind his infant because just nine months later, he would also die. According to Belle, Peter was reaching up to grab something off of the top shelf in the kitchen when a meat grinder fell on his head. Reportedly, when the coroner looked over Peter's body, he allegedly murmured to himself that this was definitely a murder. He even put together a jury to look over the evidence. And I even read somewhere that one of Belle's children had supposedly even seen the accident, if you want to call it an accident, and told a classmate that Belle had hit Peter over the head with a cleaver. But Belle was so distraught and convincing that they decided it had to have been an accident. Okay, so give me a second. We're up to what now? Like five possible bodies? Mm Mm-hmm. And God knows how much in insurance money because Belle earned herself another $3,000 from Peter's death, which is about $100,000 today. Unknown to everybody else at the time, Belle was pregnant and gave birth to a son in May 1903 that she named Philip. It's interesting to me that she didn't tell anyone because if I had murdered my husband and people were getting, like, suspicious, I totally would have played that sympathy card. I'm thinking she must have been a great actress to convince all these people that she had nothing to do with any of the mysterious deaths in her life. It wasn't even like she was a super prominent figure in the community like some of the other people that we've talked about. A few years later, Jenny, her adopted daughter, disappeared and Belle told everyone that she'd gone away to a Lutheran college in Los Angeles, which I have no doubt Belle could absolutely afford with all this money she's raking in from insurance. Yeah. In 1907, a man named Ray Lampier came to work for Belle doing chores around the farm and living in the farmhand's room on the property. It wasn't long before rumors started flying that Ray and Belle were more than just professional. Ray would go into town and get drunk and brag that he was sleeping with Belle. Mm. <laughs> such, such a man's man, Ray. <laughs> Which is super funny because we already told you that Belle was this tall, brawny, if you want to say buxom woman. And she also dressed in men's work overalls and butchered her own animals. So the people he, were bra- he was bragging to were just like, okay, bud, like, you, can, you can have her. Good. <laughs> you well do done. you. Job well done. You do you, buddy. <laughs> so what you're saying is. That she was not exactly the belle of the ball. Oh my god, is that what we're doing today? The dad jokes? Well, the townspeople would soon see whatever Ray saw because I guess Belle decided that he just wasn't enough for her and soon started looking for a new husband. She put several ads in the newspapers of several large Midwestern cities. One of them read, 
comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided <laughs> with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with a personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Triflers need not apply. <laughs> Another one said, wanted. A woman who owns a beautifully located and valuable farm in first-class condition wants a good and reliable man as partner in the same. Some little cash is required for which will be furnished first-class security. Well, I guess when everyone in town has heard about your unfortunate look with husbands, you need to think outside the box. And also, I'm obsessed with the wording <laughs> of these ads. She, I mean, if she hadn't gone down this path, she really could have made another career for herself, probably. <laughs> I need everyone to use Belle Gunness wording in like their Tinder profiles and their Please. hinge profiles. And then like make a make a big post on Instagram or something so that I can read them. Yes. Please. Well start that trend. It must have worked for Belle because according to her mail carrier, she sometimes received as many as eight letters a day from potential suitors. And Belle was soon seen riding around town in her finest clothes with several different men, many of which Belle would introduce people as her cousin. Yeah, I don't know that that's the route she should have taken when introducing them, but that was a thing back in the day. So who am I? I I don't know. Maybe I need to look into this whole placing an ad thing it seems to have worked for her yeah it seems to have worked for her the first man to arrive was john moe from elbow lake minnesota he brought more than a thousand dollars with him to pay off bell's mortgage but one week later john was gone next a man named george anderson from missouri arrived and told bell that he would pay off her mortgage if they were to marry that night though George said that he woke up in the middle of the night to find Belle standing over him, just staring at him with a sinister and murderous expression. Mm. George screamed, ran out of the house, not even bothering to grab his things, and never came back. Can't say I blame George. And how is her mortgage not already paid off with all this insurance money she's raked in? Look, that farm is not cheap. I guess not. It's 42 acres. Gotta pay the farmhand. Old Budsberg, a widower from Wisconsin, came next to call on Bell. That's not that's not his nickname. Not like there goes old Budsberg. No, his his name. <laughs> his name is Ol. O-L-E. Budsberg. That's his name. Ol Budsberg. <laughs> we're Southern, but we're not that Southern. <laughs> <laughs> Last time that old Budsberg was <laughs> The last time he was seen was at Laporte Savings Bank on April 6, 1907, where he mortgaged his own land in Wisconsin, signed over the deed to Bell, and pulled several thousand dollars in cash. When his sons realized what their father had done, they wrote to Bell, and she replied back to them that she had never even met him. Several more men arrived over the next few weeks, all of them bringing some money and all of them only staying for a short period. I'm just, there's a pattern and nobody's catching on. Are you guys yelling at the theater screen yet? (laughs) That is until Andrew Helgeline from Aberdeen, South Dakota. 
Andrew and Belle exchanged letters for several weeks before finally meeting, and it was said that they were both madly in love. One letter found later at the Helgeline farm read, To the dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person, and you I like better than anyone in the world I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company, you, the sweetest man in the whole world. We will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song, it is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in a wild rapture for you, my Andrew. I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. Well, she's wordy. I think that she's trying a little too hard here. I mean, personally, I think you're... Belle's a bit thirsty. You're coming off a she's little a bit, bit desperate right now, Belle. I mean, she sounds sincere enough to me. And <laughs> Andrew must have thought so, too. Because in January of 1908, he finally came to join his Belle and brought certificates for $2,900, his complete savings. A few days after he arrived, he and Belle were seen at the Laporte Bank trying to deposit the certificates into Belle's account. A little over a week later, the new couple came back to collect the money. Andrew was content to accept a check from the bank, but Belle demanded cash. Cash is king. She knew it. She knew. She we knew know what it. she was doing. Around this time, Ray, the farmhand, was completely in love with Belle and would do anything and everything that she asked. Eventually, he began to get incredibly jealous of all the men coming and going in Belle's life. Once Andrew was introduced to him as Belle's fiance, he completely lost it. Belle very publicly fired him, but a couple days later, Andrew was gone, and Belle was seen making yet another $1,200 deposit. And this didn't stop Ray from continuing to show up at Belle's farm and harass her. A few days later, Belle went to the courthouse demanding that Ray be arrested and claiming that he was insane and a menace to the public, which, LOL coming from Belle, honestly. <laughs> but after a short sanity hearing, Ray was released and pronounced completely sane. Around this time, Belle received a letter from Andrew's brother who had become concerned when Andrew didn't come home and he'd not heard from him. He asked Belle about Andrew's whereabouts and she replied that he wasn't with her and she believed that he'd traveled back to Norway to visit relatives. When he wrote back stating that he didn't believe his brother would do that, Belle told him that if he wanted to, he could travel to Laporte and come look for his brother. But if he expected her to help, he would have to pay her for her efforts because your girl was all about a money-making opportunity. Just shortly after, Belle returned to the courthouse yet again and had Ray arrested for trespassing on the farm. After that, she went to a lawyer claiming that Ray had threatened to kill her and burn her house down, and that she wanted to update her will as she was convinced he would carry out his threats. Surprisingly, she did not go to the police about the death threats. Belle continued to complain to the authorities about Ray over the next couple months and wrote several letters to the sheriff, Albert Smutzer claiming that Ray was creeping on her property and looking in her windows. 
She also hired a new farmhand farm hand named Joe Maxson to help out and keep Ray off of the farm. He moved into the second floor of the Gunnis house right over top the kitchen. On the morning of April 28, 1908, Joe awoke to the smell of burning. At first, in his sleep-ridden brain, he believed that Belle was making hotcakes for breakfast. What a lovely way to wake up. Which, to me, does not really sound like a compliment to Belle's cooking. Oh, probably not. <laughs> but as he became more clear, he realized that there was also smoke filling the room. He opened the door to the hall and screamed out for Belle and the children, but got no responses. He then turned and jumped out of the second floor window to run and get help. By the time Joe returned with others, the house was completely in flames and beginning to crumble. Once they had the fire extinguished and could begin to sift through the rubble, they immediately concluded that the fire had not been an accident. Ray was at the top of the suspects list, and two men were sent to find and arrest him. They started digging through the debris where they found the remains of one adult and three small children huddled together. The adult body was missing its head. Well, that's it's not really normal for uh, just a house fire, is it? That would also be my, mis- my understanding. Um, and actually, a lot of people that were present that day, including the coroner, said that the body was actually only around like 5'3 and 150 pounds, which, if you remember, is just a little too small to belong to Belle. Little bit. Little bit. The, uh, oh, if the head is missing, you can't prove it's not me scheme. Gotta keep that one in the back pocket. But as they continued digging, they found a piece of dental bridge work that the local dentist positively ID'd as belonging to Bill. Well, then that proves it. It has to be Bill. Why else would dental inserts be found in the ruins of Bell's house? Don't you know there were none of her possessions there? It was her house, but she didn't live here. None of her shit was here. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why they would be here. I definitely don't keep my retainers on my bathroom sink. Nope. Uh-uh. Mm-mm. Keep them in the house down the street. Well, due to this finding, the coroner concluded that the adult female was, in fact, Belle Gunnis. Ray was brought in for questioning, but denied having anything to do with the fire. A small neighbor boy told police that he had seen Ray, seen Ray running away from the house <laughs> across the fields on the morning of the fire, and so Ray was charged with murder and arson. Just a day or two after the blaze, Andrew Hel- Helgeline's brother <laughs> finally arrived in Laporte to search for him. He told the detectives handling the case that he believed that Bell had something to do with his brother's disappearance. At this point, though, the fire and the fate of Bell had made local newspapers, and she was named a hero who had lost her life trying to save her children. Nobody would listen to him, and by the end of the day, they were even starting to wrap up the search of the burned house for the missing head. The brother, though, wouldn't let it go, and while walking the property, noticed several, like, impressions in the ground near the hog pen. Uh, you know, red flag. If someone, if someone owns a no. hog farm. He began digging, and not too far down, he unearthed a burlap sack. When he opened the sack, he found human hands, teeth, and some accessories like watches. He immediately called police over to his area, and they dug up the remaining impressions. They found several more burlap sacks, 
all containing different human body parts, including torsos, arms, and legs. Ed Gein would have had a field day. Yeah. The first day after they found the gravesite, they had amassed parts to five different bodies. And after the second day, they had six more. Later, when they were asked how many bodies they ultimately found, police stated that they had stopped counting. That's wonderful police work. Yes. (laughs) Bit irresponsible. You do you. (laughs) On May 3rd, the body of Belle's adopted daughter, Jenny, was also found buried. In addition to numerous adult men and Jenny, the bones of two small unidentified children were found. The men's bodies had all been de-articulated at the shoulders and hips and neck. Then, Joe came forward and told police that there had been several depressions in the ground with some dirt and that Belle had told him that they were filled with rubbish. She told Joe to take a wheelbarrow full of dirt and fill the holes the rest of the way so that they were flat. So now, Belle has gone from Hero, who had died trying to save her children from a fire, to a mysterious hog farmer who may have murdered numerous men and even her own children. Newspapers throughout the country labeled her as the Laporte Ghoul, the Laporte Black Widow, or Hell's Bells, or Mistress of Murder Farm. Hell's Bells, my personal favorite. Yeah, I like that one. Also, it could be because I'm an ACDC lover. I like the Black Widow one. Uh, yeah, I like Hell's Bell. Sticking with that. When Ray was arrested, he was wearing the overcoat of John Moe and the watch of another missing man, Henry Gerholt. On May 22nd, 1908, he was tried for murder and arson, both of which he pled innocent to. His lawyer based his defense on the fact that the body could not be proven to be Bell and that the dental work could have been planted. Furthermore, a forensic chemist found traces of strychnine, strychnine. strychnine there you go. in the bodies of the burnt children, causing them to determine poisoning as the cause of death and not the fire. This saved Ray from a guilty verdict on the murder charges, but he was ultimately found guilty of the arson. In November, he was sentenced to 21 years in the state prison in Michigan City, Indiana. And only one year later, on December 30th, he died of tuberculosis in prison. And TB will get you, won't it? At least back then. If it can kill Doc Holliday, it can kill you. A few weeks after Ray's death, a reverend claimed that on his deathbed, he finally told the truth about what had happened on the farm and claimed that Bell was still alive somewhere out there. The reverend said that Ray swore he never killed anyone, but he had helped Belle bury her victims. According to Ray, when a new man would arrive, Belle would charm him and cook him a large meal. That would get me. Yeah, yeah, me too. (laughs) Then she would either drug his coffee, or no, that would get me, (laughs) coffee, or chloroform him while he was sleeping. And when he was out, she would hit him over the head with a meat chopper. Belle then carried the body to the basement where she would dismember it and place the pieces into burlap sacks and bury them in the hog pen. Other times, he said, she would just cut up the victim and feed it straight to the hogs because what else are they good for? Yep. They'll eat anything. Mm-hmm. Next, Ray claimed that a week before the fire, Belle had traveled to Chicago to find a housekeeper. She brought her back to Laporte and in the same way as the male suitors, Belle drugged her, smashed her head in, and then decapitated her. Ray said that she weighed the head down, don't know with what, and then tossed it into a swamp. 
Then she drugged and poisoned her children and staged all the bodies together. He told the reverend that he was supposed to wait for Belle at a predetermined place after setting the fire, but that she never showed. Shocking. The headless body from the fire, having been legally declared as Belle from the dental work found, was buried next to Belle's first husband, Mads, at Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. Seven men were positively identified, including... Old Budsberg. Old Budsberg, Henry Gerhold, and Olaf Lindblom, all of Wisconsin, Benjamin Carling, Olaf Svenherd, and Thomas Lindbor of Chicago, and Joe Moe of Illinois. John Moe. John Moe. You were doing so well. Most of the bodies found on the farm, though, were never identified due to the manner in which they were buried and the crude methods used to dig them up. Fourteen full bodies were constructed, but there were numerous bones, teeth, and accessories left over. After the bodies were removed, more, sorry, after they were recovered, more and more reports of missing men began pouring in from all over the country. Ray claimed that Bell killed as many as 42 men and took anywhere from $1,000 to $30,000 from each of them. And she was still paying a mortgage. I mean, I'm going to throw this out there, and it's a little crazy, but maybe she lied about the mortgage. Maybe she did lie about the mortgage. I, I, I don't know. Unsure. Possible. Doesn't seem like she was the most trustworthy. It ain't tracking. Investigators also checked into all of Bell's financial accounts after this, but just a couple days before the fire, everything had been withdrawn from her account. What do you know? What do you know? Over the next couple decades, supposed sightings of Bell were reported all over the Midwest. See, just like Elvis and Tupac. But none were ever proven. However, there is one fairly popular conspiracy about Bell's fate. On February 9th, 1931, a man named August Lindstrom died of what was believed to be a heart attack in Lameda, California. Just a week later, August's son had been going through his late father's finances when he realized that August's housekeeper, Esther Carlson, had gotten August to alter his will just days before his death. That sounds familiar. I know. She was to inherit all of his money, about $2,000, worth so much more than it had been just years earlier due to the start of the Great Depression. She had also had her name added to the deed on his house. After this revelation, the son asked to have the body exhumed and an autopsy performed. What the autopsy revealed was that August had been poisoned with arsenic in his pea soup. Mm. Gotta eat the pea soup before it eats you. Anna Erickson, a neighbor of August's and friend of Esther's, had also ended up in the hospital with arsenic poisoning at the same time. What do you know? While there... She told police that Esther had not only poisoned her in August, but she also told Anna that in 1925, she had poisoned her husband, Charles, and another man, Gustav, that Esther had been caring for. It was said that her husband had died of stomach cancer, which, Sarah, exactly how close would the symptoms of stomach cancer be to, say, long-term poisoning? Now, okay. Nowadays, long-term symptoms are a bit more distinct from stomach cancer because we know more. Right. Initial symptoms, though, like some of them are similar. 
but compared to Victorian medicinal knowledge, like I'm sure they were almost one in the same. So it wouldn't be a wouldn't super be far big fetched. stretch. No, 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 no. And not to throw in more rampant speculation, as I love to do, <laughs> but didn't we say that the man who had supposedly caused Belle's miscarriage died not long after of stomach cancer? Makes you wonder. Hmm. Both women hurled accusations at each other. And on February 24th, both Esther Carlson and Anna Erickson were arrested for poisoning August. Unfortunately, Carlson also had pulmonary tuberculosis and her health was failing quickly. And Esther was also soon hospitalized. An officer even went to Esther in the hospital to try and extract a deathbed confession. But Esther maintained her innocence. In case you're wondering why tuberculosis or TB was so widespread in the Victorian era, era, Jesus Christ, (laughs) here's a little history for you. TB back in the day was also known as consumption because you would lose so much weight that it's like the disease consumed consumed you. you. So that's where that comes from. But it wasn't until the 1940s after the development of the antibiotic streptomycin that a decline in tuberculosis was seen, as streptomycin is effective in the treatment of tuberculosis. So, what does this have to do with Bell? Well, surprisingly, the way that Bell first gets brought up didn't actually have to do with Esther's case at all. In late February, a local Los Angeles man printed something in the newspaper asking if there was still a reward being offered for anyone that could locate Belle Gunness. He had found a wealthy old lady and believed that she was Belle. The woman was checked out and police quickly ruled her out as being Belle, but it brought the mystery of the mistress of Murder Farm back to the forefront of everybody's brain. A month later, a picture was printed of an ailing Esther in her hospital bed with police surrounding her and people went crazy saying that that woman was Belle Gunness. Police decided to bring in two witnesses from LaPorte who had known Belle personally. They were actually trying to prove that she wasn't Belle because they honestly like didn't want to have to deal with all the legal stuff that came with Belle being alive. Well, one of the women brought in identified a photograph of three small children found in Esther's belongings as being Belle's children, and she was certain that the photograph was of them. Also found in Esther's trunk was an empty bottle of strychnine tablets. Two other men from Laporte wrote in to say that they were positive that this woman was Belle, and one even claimed that he had seen Belle escaping across the fields the night of the fire. Carlson denied any accusations that she was Belle, and on May 6th, Esther died in custody before her trial could proceed. She was buried next to her husband in Valley Cemetery in Hemet, California. So was Esther Belle Gunness in disguise? We don't know. (laughs) Just after Esther's death, a man named Mr. Barnes from Hartford, Connecticut, came forward claiming to be married to Esther's sister, Christina. He had come to take care of funeral arrangements, saying that Christina was too sick to travel. He told reporters that there was no foundation to the claims that Esther was Belle and gave a short account of Esther's life before arriving in California. According to him... Esther had been born in Sweden and immigrated to the United States in 1890, where she moved to Hartford, Connecticut. 
She worked as a housemaid for the Cook family until marrying a man named Charles Hansen in 1907, who apparently drowned six months after. In 1908, she moved to Arizona, where she met Charles Carlson, and the two married in 1911. In 1925, after her husband died, she moved to Los Angeles to work for August Lindstrom. A lot of people refer to this account of her life as proof that she couldn't be Belle. There's a YouTube video done by a Norwegian pianist named Newt Eric Jensen, where he actually tracks down historical records of Esther's life, including marriage and death certificates, obituaries, census records, and newspaper articles. He goes into a little more detail about the death of the two men in 1925, as well as a friendship between the Carlsons and August Lindstrom. Essentially, he proves through these documents that what her brother-in-law recounts about her life is true, and we learn that Esther Carlson is not Belle Gunness. There's a link to the video in our show notes if you want to check it out. Does that mean that she wasn't another murderess, though? Absolutely not. It also doesn't prove that Belle was actually killed on that night in 1908, nor that she wasn't out there somewhere still hiding. In November 2007, Graduate forensic anthropologist students at the University of Indianapolis obtained permission from descendants of Bell's sister Nellie to exhume the headless body in hopes of proving its true identity. They found an envelope among Helgeline's belongings that he had received from Bell. The envelope had been opened by letter opener and therefore was still sealed where the flap was, where they had hoped Bell had licked. They believed they could compare DNA samples from the envelope to the headless body that was buried. Unfortunately, there was either not enough DNA or it had degraded too much and the test was inconclusive. So as of now, we will never find out if it was really her. What a letdown. (laughs) No, sorry. Build you up, let you down. There was your climax, sorry. As for the murder farm... Just days after the bodies were discovered, the mass burial site became a huge tourist attraction because when is it not? When is it not? According to Harold Schechter's book, Hell's Princess, the Lake Erie and Western Railroad actually arranged for special excursion trains to bring visitors from Indianapolis and Chicago to come visit the area. Well, that was thoughtful. Every hotel in the port and nearby towns was booked, and one estimate put at least 16 to like 20,000 people visiting the farm on Sunday, May 10th. There were vendors set up selling snacks and souvenirs, and tourists even like jumped into the graves to scavenge them. Because if anything, we as humans are ruthless. (laughs) The LaPorte County Historical Society Museum has established a permanent Bell Gunness exhibit, and the Guinness Book of World Records even honored Bell for the greatest number of murders ever ascribed to a modern murderess. Don't know if honored <laughs> is the right word there, but you know that's what that's what we're using. So that's what there we are. They put her body count at twenty-eight. Today, the land that once housed her farm has been split up and many people live there. And it is believed to be haunted. Because, of course, I mean, it would have to be. Oh, yeah. 
And that's that on Belgunus. Belgunus slash Burnhild Sorset slash maybe Esther Carlson mm-hmm. slash maybe somebody else. Who knows? But odds are she lived her best life until she kicked the bucket, whenever that was. You know, I love giving you my opinion, so I think that she I don't think it, <laughs> I don't think she died. I don't think she did either. I think I mean I mean I think she died. Like, right. Like, she's, she's gone dead. now. She has since passed. But. I don't think she went up in a blaze. I think in that. In a blaze of glory. I think that that was uh, quite a show she put on. What a case. What, what do you case. guys think? Yeah, let us know. Thank y'all so much for listening and spending your time with us yet again. We really do appreciate it. And we still love bringing you these episodes. If the mood strikes. Go give us a like, a follow, a rate, a review, and subscribe to our podcast and social medias. We post case-related photos, and it's a great way to ensure that you don't miss out. All your links are in the show notes, along with our sources. And tune in next Wednesday for yet another episode of Murder After Dark. Until then, remember to lock your doors. And as always, we hope you loved it, we hope you learned something, and we hope you keep coming back for more. Bye.